Hello and welcome to Foster Source. This is Child Welfare Attorneys Panel. This is the first time we've ever done this. We are really excited. We've done judicial panels before up as far as the appellate courts in Colorado, but we've never had a chance to chat individually with the different attorneys involved in child welfare cases. We are very excited. Um, we have pinned the questions for today's panel in the handouts tab of the classroom. We will always also have the question that is currently being answered displayed on the screen. If you have follow-up questions, please post them in the Q&A. You can chat with yourselves or with us through the chat. Please remember that this is being recorded for future on-demand viewing, so please do not give personal details. I am so thrilled to welcome the four panelists today. It's a beautiful morning in Colorado, and there are a lot of fun things we could all be doing outdoors, but this is so important. I really appreciate all of you coming. I'm gonna do a quick introduction and then each panelist is gonna start and introduce themselves, tell you a little bit about them, and then we will dive in. We have Tasha Riley. Tasha is the Respondent Parent Counsel. That means guys that she is the attorney for the child. Yeah, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. She is the attorney for the bio parents. <laughs> I almost want to start re-recording, but I'm not going to. Tasha is the attorney for the bio parents. Nicita Bradburn is the guardian ad litem, or otherwise known as GAL. She is the attorney for the child. Tim Irie is a private family law attorney in the area that a lot of foster and adoptive parents have used for various reasons. I'm thrilled to have you with us today, Tim. And Casey Mulhern is a staff attorney at the Rocky Mountain Children's Law Center. I'm excited for you guys to hear the services that are offered at the Rocky Mountain Children's Law Center. We have a really, really in-depth and amazing panel. So I thank all of you and let's get started. Nicita, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role as a GAL? Yeah, hi, I'm Nicita. I am the guardian ad litem in Adams County. My job is to represent the best interest of children. I always tell kids, it's kind of like if they asked me if they could eat ice cream every single day, I'd probably say no, I'll let the court know they want, but my job is to represent their best interest, not exactly necessarily what they want. Um, I have been in Adams County for 13 years, 14 years, something long um, within there. And then I also do respondent parent work um, privately, oftentimes adoptive parents sometimes need the support of the system later on. And then I do foster parent and relative intervener status as well. Awesome, welcome. Tim. Hi, good morning, everybody. My name is Tim Eyrick. Um, I am a partner and attorney at what I call a niche family law firm because our firm um, really doesn't do any divorce work. Really, we really focus on a couple different specific areas, one of which is child welfare. Um, I typically represent relatives and foster parents, um, as well as adoptive parents that need to re-access the child welfare system in the context of uh, dependency and neglect cases. Um, in addition to that, um, I serve as general counsel for nine different adoption agencies, where I do the, all the legal work to legally free children for adoption. Um, and then we also specialize in surrogacy work, as well as juvenile immigration, where we help children who are oftentimes um, left without their parents here in the United States, and we help them get status. Um, I will tell you all that um, I have never been a foster parent. Um, however, prior to going into law, 
I used to run a group home for kids down in New Orleans. And so I say this because um, what you do, to echo on what um, Renee said to you all earlier, what you do is probably one of the most important things in the child welfare system. Um, and I know firsthand, having raised children that are not my own, having raised children that don't always look like me, I can tell you I understand firsthand how complicated and challenging that is. So thank you all for what you do. Thank you, Tim. And Tim mentioned legally freed children. Those are children that where TPR, ter termination of parental rights, has already been issued. Um, sometimes these children are still in foster care and looking for a permanent adoptive home. Thank you, Tim. Tasha, we're so glad to have you here today representing RPCs. Tell us about yourself. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Tasha Riley, and I do work or have a contract, rather, uh, in Adams County doing respondent parent counsel work, and that is representing parents who ch whose children are involved in dependency and neglect cases. Uh, I also uh, work as a GAL in Adams as well, representing kids in all kinds of situations, whether it's dependency and neglect, truancy, kid criminal cases, uh, you name it. Um, my firm does uh, kind of, I don't want to say specialize, but our, our main source of business uh, is family law. So I actually do handle divorce cases, custody matters. Um, I've had quite a few cases where uh, family members intervene into dependency and neglect cases. So I kind of run uh, more of the traditional route when you think of family law. Um, I would echo the sentiments of everyone. I think that what you all bring to the table and do as foster parents is really essential um, to the end goal of reunifying these families. I take my hats off to you. It is not easy uh, from a GAL perspective. I've had really hard kiddos to place that find great foster homes that are instrumental in kind of stepping into the shoes of the parent on a temporary basis and really giving that kid not only the love, but also the, the home and the stability that they need while the case is open. So I too thank you. And quite frankly, I don't know how you do it. Um, I have kiddos of my own that I wish I could put up for adoption. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> they're mostly teenagers, of course. Um, so I just, again, I take my hat off to you and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you, Tasha. It's always a thrill for us when we can have an RPC on the panel because I feel like having that representative does the most to break down the barriers that are kind of automatically built between families and bio families. And that shouldn't be the case. If any of you have ever had a case where you've actually had a chance to connect with bio family um, and work together, it really changes the course of that case. So I'm looking forward to your input. Thank you, Tasha. Casey, thank you so much for being here on behalf of the Rocky Mountain Children's Law Center. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what the Law Center does. 
Certainly. So I am the attorney that leads our caregiver advocacy program that focuses on foster parents and relatives and other friends and family who are caring for children in and out of the foster care system. So we work with families like yours that are in dependency cases. We also work with a lot of families in informal care who haven't been put into a formal child welfare case or in a voluntary or a diversion case where they need legal orders and support. So in that role, we work statewide with people on a free and sliding scale basis as a nonprofit. A couple other things I wanted to highlight for this group about our services and ways that people can contact us. We do have attorneys that specialize in education advocacy who specifically want to help make sure that young people have access to schools, whether that is around us special ed and not having the services they need to access their learning material or school discipline issues to make sure those are handled appropriately, especially considering the trauma that a lot of our young people are bringing into the classroom. Um, so there's there's advocates there. Sometimes they are supports to guardians ad litem and DNN cases. Sometimes they're supports directly for the families, but feel free to reach out to us for that sort of service. And another thing to let your families know and the children in your care is that we have a group called Project Foster Power that is a young person-led uh, community organizing group that wants to make change in the foster care system. So it's generally youth between the ages of 15 and 25 who've been in care in some capacity or who self-identify as someone who's been in the foster care system. And they wanna come together to identify issues to bring to the legislature or other authorities to make sure that their lived experience shapes how our foster care system and child welfare professionals do their jobs and structure the system. So if there are young people in your care who would like that sort of connection with their peers or with anybody else, they are welcome to reach out to us and get in touch with our, uh, our adult ally who's on staff who can connect them to the youth leaders who do that work on a regular basis. So we're here to support in a number of different capacities. We've had you know, longstanding relationships in different ways in the community and have met some of you before, both professionally and, and your families. And we're very excited to be here today with these other professionals. Thank you so much. That is awesome to know about the school. I didn't know that. We often do a navigating the special education system class and usually have private advocates. So in the future, I will be contacting your office, Casey. That's awesome. Okay, let's dive in. Um, question one. This is probably one of the questions that came up the most from, from our foster parents, and that is, what is intervening and do I need an attorney to intervene? In what types of cases do foster parents intervene? Is it common? Are there advantages? Are there disadvantages? I feel like when I was fostering seven years ago, not as many people intervened, and I feel like more and more people are intervening now. I'm going to start with Tim, but as a reminder for the panel, if you have something to add to any question, please just unmute yourself, and then I'll know that you'd like to speak as well. All right, well, I will tell you all, um, I do hour-long presentations on this question. Um, so, I will tell you, when I talk about intervening, I put it in the context of um, a couple of things. First of all, as foster parents, you really have two basic rights. You first have a right to be heard. Um, simply as having a child in your care without taking any legal steps, you have a right to be told when court is, and you have a right to attend that hearing and be heard. In addition to that right, you have this right called to intervene. 
Um, and then years, for years in Colorado, it was unclear how those two rights were different. And so when Renee talks about that in the last couple of years, this idea of intervention has become more, um, more popular, more seen. Um, it's because around 2013, our Supreme Court released a case clarifying what intervention means and clarifying um, that you're allowed to do so. Um, and one of the reasons I do a lot of this work is I actually handled that case. And so, you know, I will tell you um, in a nutshell, what, what intervention means is that it allows you to become a party to the case to allow the court to make sure that court has all the information he or she needs to make decisions for that child. Um, that means the right to um, intervene with or without an attorney. It means the right to call witnesses. It, it means the right to cross-examine witnesses. It means the right to file motions and to um, essentially raise issues before the court. Whereas the right to be heard simply means if, if the guardian litem or someone is giving an update to the court, you know, and say, you know, Johnny has this medical condition, the right to heard means say, hey, judge, I'm the foster mother. Can I give you clarity about what the medical issue is? So the right to be heard means that you have a right to give an update. It doesn't mean the right to advocate. Um, when I teach this class about intervention, I put it in the context of what these cases are. Uh, and I will give a nutshell overview of that. What these cases are, this is government intervention in family life. This is not a case where the court is weighing, is a foster parent better than a biological parent? Um, and I say that um, in part because this is part of the analysis the Supreme Court went through when it talked about what intervention is and what it's not. And so when I talk about intervention being a right of a foster parent, it's in this context of this is a case in which the government has intervened in family life. And because of that, the government is required to give the parents a certain level of process to try to get their child back. So your intervention is not about going in there and arguing how you're better for this child as compared to the parents. Your intervention needs to be done in the context of this umbrella that parents have a right to try to get their child back. Um, and again, there's a lot of gray area in there. There's a lot of gray area about at what point is it safe for that to occur? There's a lot of gray area as to what point, you know, visits might should, should progress from supervised to unsupervised. Um, but intervention. You know, when we had the case before the Supreme Court, a lot of the arguments against intervention were that if we allow foster parents to intervene, these cases are going to turn into a comparison of what's, who's better for the child, the parent or the child. They were concerned that if you allow foster parents to intervene, it's going to turn into something that the law doesn't permit. Um, and what we argued was intervention is really about ensuring that foster parents have a seat at the table to ensure that the court has all the information the court needs to make good decisions for the child. Um, and the Supreme Court unanimously agreed with that. 
The Supreme Court said that in a unanimous opinion written by Justice Boatwright, who by the way, used to be the juvenile court judge in Jefferson County. He essentially said, who better to provide information to the judge than the people caring for this child 24 seven. He also made it very clear that in response to the concerns about what would happen if you make foster parents intervene. And part of what the other side argued was, you know, if you let foster parents intervene, judges are gonna make erroneous decisions. They're gonna make a bad decision because they're gonna be so dazzled about how awesome foster parents are, they're gonna forget what this case is about. And what Justice Boatwright said was actually we disagree. We actually think judges are more likely to make a bad decision if foster parents are not involved. Yeah. Um, they also clarified that your intervention does not take away from the rights of the parents. Parents still have a right to have an attorney. They still have a right to have this process in place to try to get their child back. They also made it very clear that in the context of a termination hearing in which you are allowed to participate, you are not allowed to turn this into a comparison about whether you're better as a parent for this child. Um, and so, in a nutshell, um, watering down a much longer yeah. conversation, what our law says is that when you've had the child in your care for more than three months, when the child has already been adjudicated dependent or neglected, mm -hmm. and if you have information concerning this child's care and protection, which presumably you do simply by caring for that child, of course. You, you may intervene as a matter of right. And, and the law says you can do that with or without an attorney. I'm sorry, Renee, I thought you were going to inject a question. No, no, I was, okay. I think that what you have hit on is, is perfect. This isn't to, you don't intervene to show how well the child is doing in your care. And the ironic thing is, in my opinion, if foster parents were just allowed a seat at the table, and if foster parents were just included as part of the team, we wouldn't need to intervene. But for the most part, we we don't get any information. And a lot of times we're just not told things. Um, so my, my understanding, Tim, just to clarify, is when you become a party to the case, you then receive all of the documentation um, from the court. You can see all of the court records. Is that true? Um, you know, it's, that's one of the gray areas, and it really depends on the county, and it depends on the issue before the court. Okay. And so you absolutely, you know, and again, I speak to what I get when I come in as an attorney on a case. A lot of times if a foster parent intervenes and they don't have an attorney, they sometimes might get access to something else. But generally speaking, they can get access to the court file. You know, if the case is set for a termination hearing, and foster parents are allowed to fully participate in a termination hearing, in that context, they should get everything. Mm -hmm. um, the area becomes a little grayer if the case is not yet set for termination, and if a parent has a privileged psychological evaluation or a privileged evaluation, okay. um, that generally is a, is a sealed record that you're probably not gonna get access to that until that becomes an issue before the court. Um, gotcha. But that's one, that's one of the grayer areas um, in the law. Um, 
Okay. And I would add, you know, we've done judicial panels in several counties because that the counties, you know, the judicial systems are divided up by county and there are different cultures in different counties. Um, some counties when asked, how do you really feel when a foster parent intervenes? Some counties said, we think it's great and we welcome you as part of the team. Other counties said, honestly, it just makes more work for us. So there are different cultures in, in each county, but if you as a foster parent feel like, and th like that is the better way for you to advocate for your child, it's definitely something worth considering. And if I can say this on that point, Renee, you know, a couple of years ago, um, you know, I, a couple of years ago, I was on a, a, the committee, a judge's committee to train other judges about how to practice in dependency neglect cases. And as part of that week-long training for judges, um, I gave a presentation about intervention by relatives and by foster parents. And I, and, I, and I practice across the state. So I was in trial this week in Denver and in Fort Collins. Um, I've been down in Durango. The case that intervention stems from is actually from Cortez, Colorado. Um, I asked judges that question. We did a poll about how do you feel about intervention? Um, and when I meet with foster parents and when I train on this issue, um, what judges said, and I strongly believe, I think much like most things in life, it's not that you have a right to do it necessarily, it's how you do it. And so when I talk about foster parents intervening, um, and what I heard from judges is it's not so much the intervention itself that they have an opinion on, they have an opinion on how, how you do it. So if you come in, for example, on your own, or if you come in with a family law attorney that knows nothing about child welfare, and if you try to turn this case into something it's not, or if your intervention becomes a distraction and you're not advocating under that umbrella of what these cases are and they're not, then you'll become a distraction to that judge then your voice won't be heard as much. So I strongly believe how you intervene is the critical piece. How you do something matters. That's valid. I'm glad that you said that. I wanted to spend a little bit more time on this question this morning because we were asked this so often. So I appreciate all of that. Um, one follow-up question, which I think is going to be answered super quick, is when parents intervene, are their names and addresses exposed? I'm, I'm guessing yes, because they're a party to the case. You know, that's a great question. And so I'll, I'll answer it with a little story. Years ago, um, down in Colorado Springs, they made everybody what they call um, interested parties. And even to this day, they don't use the term intervener so much, they call them interested persons. And as a matter of course, they named everybody by initial. Um, and then at one point, the parent's attorney started questioning, hey, if you're becoming a party to the case, shouldn't your name be disclosed? And so um, generally speaking, everywhere in the state except Boulder right now, if you intervene, your name gets disclosed. Um, as you all know, what the law says is that when you're a foster parent, you're protected by anonymity. You could be the anonymous foster parent. However, when you intervene, um, your name absent some emergency circumstance, like you're being threatened or some exception where the judge would permit, and again, notwithstanding Boulder being the exception, um, 
you, you need to expect that your name will intervene and you no longer get the benefit of anonymity. Um, what I tell people in terms of addresses is if you intervene with an attorney, your attorney's address and information will be disclosed, not yours. Um, if you intervene on your own, I often advise people to get a PO box or just acknowledge the fact that whatever contact information you share will be distributed to other attorneys and potentially their clients. So it depends on your comfort level of having your home address disclosed. Thank you. Okay, Dee, can you go to the next question? Casey, I'm going to have you start with this one. When can foster parents hire an attorney for their children? At what point in a case should or do most parents seek an attorney? It seems frowned upon by the county. And I feel like Tim addressed some of that, right? It, it kind of depends on how you approach it. But Casey, you and I talk, spoke privately this week, and you were telling me that it's seen differently if you're three months into the case, one month into the case, and you are already seeking legal counsel. That's viewed differently than if it's eight, 10, 12 months down the road? So it certainly can be. Um, I guess I want to back up from this question just a little bit to make sure that the role of the attorney that an intervener or foster parent is seeking out is clear. So the guardian ad litem, NYSEDA, whoever is appointed in your case, continues to be the attorney for the child. And I know a lot of families come to me because their intent in the case is to advocate for the child from their point of view, but it still is from the foster parent or from the intervener family's point of view that that advocacy is done. You're not going to be seen as a neutral person. You're not going to be seen as a party who's speaking for the children now in the same way that the guardian ad litem or other others who are in touch with your child on that case team are. And so I think it's just an important way to frame it to say, um, while that might be your truest intent, and I believe foster parents in that, in that they want to bring information from the children's perspective when they get into these cases, your attorney is your attorney and not the child's attorney when they step into that role for you as an as intervener counsel. Um, so as far as the timing, Tim explained when legally an attorney can um, file that motion to intervene or a person without an attorney can if you're a foster parent, those things have to have been put in place. The adjudication has to have happened. You have to have had care for three months, be able to meet that legal standard. So there's a little bit of a difference there. Um, what I was sharing with Renee is that from our agency's perspective, it's a lot easier for us to kind of assess what options there are for a foster family a little bit later in the process. Because as you've all experienced, and as Tim was setting out as he started, the purpose of this system is reunification. So your legal options and your role in the case in month two might look a lot different than in month seven, as far as what information has come out through the treatment process Process, what information is before the court about other placement issues. And so I would say that um, later in the case becomes a place where foster parents may have more independent issues to bring forward or things like that for, for my agency because we're a mission-driven agency. We're always looking at the arc of the case before we get involved. We want to see where is this case going, where have services been successful and failed before we're going to jump in on behalf of intervener counsel just because we have to set our priorities as an agency as far as what types of cases we take. And so that's the choice we've made to say if a foster family comes to us super early and needs some 
some kind of lay of the land advice or decoding of all the crazy acronyms that you're now encountering, we are happy to meet with you to advise you, but your, your kind of legal uh, issues that you may raise, at least when I see them typically come up a little bit later when there's a question about placement or a question about uh, permanency or things that are kind of leaning a, a case towards TPR or otherwise. So I don't know if that's the most that's super helpful. That's super helpful. I didn't know. I mean, a lot, most foster parents are new, right? Because most foster parents quit within the first one to two years. Um, so to know that they could reach out to you, even with some help understanding all of the players is, is great information. So thank you. I don't you, think Kate. it's a hard and fast rule to say legal issues don't come up until later. I think from my perspective, that's just the, the theme of the case in my, in my, view of when I see those issues just come a little more um, fully before the court that may involve sure. foster parents. Um, but at the same time, your case may sideways for a whole number of reasons. So don't let me discourage you from reaching out to somebody from getting advice about what your options are. The last thing I would say as far as it seems to be frowned upon by the county, I think this gets at what you were saying, Renee, about the differences around the state. And this is a human system run by humans. And certainly some people are going to be a little more confrontational or adversarial. Some people just think that they are gonna to forget to put interveners on their distribution list. And so they are more trying to work, work you into their process that they have in their other cases. So I wouldn't let that discourage you if you think this is the step you need to take in your case. The, the county may or may not frown upon it. There may or may not be uh, a position on it. I've had people who call me and say, the caseworker told me to call you. So, you know, there's been issues where the caseworker might say, please go get your own legal advice. You need sure. to you know, have your own support there. So, so okay. reach out if this is something that you think you may need, um, even if you feel like it's not the most welcome step in your case. Thank you. Dee, can you go to question three? I would like to have Tasha start with question three. Tasha, as a representative for the bio family, what is one thing that you wish all foster parents knew that we don't know? What, what are we not realizing that would help? Oh my gosh. Um, so I, I think the first thing I would say is that every case is different. Um, not only is every, for better or for worse, every jurisdiction different, you can get three different answers within the same county at the same uh, Department of Human Services. It just kind of depends on the caseworker and the situation. I think what, what I wish that there was, and this is even across the board, and I have to check myself on this sometimes, is to really have a heart for the trauma that the family has gone through and is going through. Um, I think the one constant that I can say for all of my parents across the board is that nine and a half times out of 10, there is a underlying trauma component that has sparked what you're seeing now at the age of 20 something or 30 something. So for me, what has really come out of representing parents is that sense of compassion to what they have experienced as kids, what they've experienced as adolescents and young adults. And this is what we're seeing now. So I, I think it's kind of easy for us to say, you're a drug addict, you exposed your baby to drugs, shame on you. But I wish that just everyone, whether it's 
respondent parent counsel, the GAL, the judge, you know, foster parents, even the caseworker. This is a human being who has a trauma history and we need to stop and pause for a moment and kind of take that into consideration before just pointing the finger at them. I think that's so important. And I do see counties um, leaning more in that direction in that they are improving their icebreaker policies. They want us to meet bio parents right away and we should. Um, there, there seems to almost be like this wall in the beginning built between bio and foster families. And it's really unfortunate. You know, in our first case, it wasn't until seven or eight months in that I finally saw her. I finally saw her for what she was going through and what that must feel like. And once our walls came down, we really connected and it really did change the trajectory of the case. Um, I'm going to actually skip ahead a couple just because we're on this topic, Tasha. Tasha, um, <laughs> What do RPCs really think of foster parents? That was a question that came in. I'm going to plead the fifth on that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I will say, I think it depends on the situation and the I think it depends on the situation. It definitely depends on the timing, you okay. know, of when foster parents intervene. And it definitely depends on how foster parents intervene. You know, when these cases are first filed, first of all, parents automatically have that wall up. Yeah. It is us against the system is kind of what their mindset is. And believe it or not, even respondent parent counsel, they are looked at as part of the system. It takes our clients a while to recognize that I am part of your team and, you know, I want the best for you. Okay. And it also depends on the RPC because you have a lot of RPC that are quite frankly talking puppets for their clients. And that doesn't necessarily help their client to really understand what the issues are and come to grips with what those issues are. Okay. So I like to say I'm not one of those talking puppets. So I try to encourage our clients to break those walls down. And a lot of times it's not gonna happen within the first couple of, of hearings or first couple of meetings. It takes a while to gain that client's trust and then to really make them see that we're really a team. And this is what we're all here to see is the family reunified, depending on what that looks like. That might look like parents placed, I'm sorry, kids placed with grandparents, right. you know, but it does take a village and we're all here to see the family reunify. So, so I think it depends okay. is okay. kind of the, the, the short answer. Um, I think for the most part, a lot of our, our parents start off not liking the system period, which unfortunately includes all of us, including right. the foster parents. Um, I think after a while, those walls can be you know, brought down, but it does take some of our parents time. And again, it goes back to what they're experiencing. A lot of our parents 
were children in the foster care system themselves. So they bring along what those experiences were. If they were positive, you will see a parent that's more open to building a relationship with the foster parents. Uh, If it was more of a negative experience, you're going to see parents who are more resistant to that idea. And the first thing that they demand is that their kids are taken out of foster care and placed anywhere, even if that's in a cardboard box on the corner. Yeah. But that's what their experience is. So someone's saying, you know, as foster parents, we want to attend hearings from the beginning, but sometimes the county asks us not to because it may negatively affect the relationship or potential relationship with the biological family. And now that you've said that, that makes sense. They're still getting their feet wet as to what's even going on. Um, So in that case, I would say, you know, talk to your caseworker, talk to your GAL if they feel like it would help for you to be at the first few cases, or if that might be a time to just kind of let the family figure out what's what's going on. Thank you, Tasha. I think we can go to the second one um, or the fourth one. This is a great one for for Niceta, if you would weigh in on this. In what ways can and would you like to see foster and kinship families more involved in the legal aspects of the case? Or what areas should we stay out of more? I mean, I think um, it's been talked about very well, of course, by the other panelists about the timing and the manner and the way people get involved within there. Um, But for me, I guess the more people at the table and whose voices I can hear, whether I agree with them or not, it's still more information and more things for me to think about and consider and when how I do my job and, and what I'm doing for children and, and how I'm ensuring their best interests are met, how we're supporting family relationships and, and ties within there. Um, so having that voice and speaking up and talking to the caseworkers and the GALs, knowing that don't assume if you tell one person something that everybody else knows it because we all can do better with our communication. Um, so making sure that we're communicating with everyone. I have some really great foster homes who, I mean, they send me like weekly updates, especially with my little newborns and infants. And I love it. I mean, it's so helpful within there because not only am I seeing the children, of course, in person, but every single week things change. And I really appreciate that. Um, and when they're reaching out and telling me, hey, this is what happened today. And, and let me let you know, this is the struggle at school today with this behavior or whatnot. If I have to wait, you know, if I'm not hearing from people quite a bit and I have to wait till my next visit, my next phone call, my next school check-in, I mean, we're doing those, you know, every single month, but there's a lot of things that happen. So um, in the sense of just being in the communication portion, that helps with moving cases forward as well. As far as getting involved in the legal aspects, like intervening um, and whatnot, I would have to agree with everyone else. It really, I don't mind having more people at the table, again, whether I agree with people or not. Um, But I think that the way things are done and the way that people come in with grace towards others, um, especially with those icebreakers at the beginning, I wish everyone would do those if the parents Mm -hmm. are open to them. Things that the more supported families feel in general, the better outcomes we have even if it's not a return home, I feel like if they have that positive relationship with foster parents, if children end up remaining there, sometimes parents knowing that that's, that they have that and know that, um, I think is just even more helpful for them to, to really make those decisions, tough decisions sometimes that they do. So absolutely. We have foster parents who still babysit 
for bio parents where the child went home. I mean, a supportive, ongoing relationship is possible. Um, not in every case, obviously, but it is definitely something that can be can be worked towards. Um, Tasha, I'm not even sure what this one means. Do you can go to the next slide. What is the benefit for bio parents to request an adjudication trial with a jury? Does that happen? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, <laughs> I have one case where we've been waiting on a jury trial for about a year and a half due to COVID. Um, so I, again, as all attorneys will tell you, it depends is our favorite and only answer that we have to every legal question. Um, but for example, I have cases where my parents also have criminal cases uh, from child abuse or, you know, some sort of sexual assault allegations for the children. And we will ask for a jury trial, first of all, because they do have a right to a jury trial. Um, but a lot of times we are trailing that criminal jury trial and trying to see what comes out of, of that. Um, I have other parents that want to be heard and they just don't feel as though the judge is going to really understand, you know, they're part of it. They want six of their peers to sit in that box and listen to what happened on January the 25th and maybe relate to why they reacted this way instead of us child protection professionals say, no, you should put the kid in timeout. So it just depends on the parent. But for the most part, those are the two that I am seeing most often, which you have some sort of criminal case out of the facts of, of our dependency and neglect, or you have parents that really want to be heard by someone that they feel is more like them and you will ask for those jury trials. Um, with COVID, <laughs> jury trials have been just, they're non-existent. I say it's the moving goalposts. It's the phantom jury trial that one of these days we are supposed to have, and we just honestly don't know when that will occur. Okay, that is interesting. Yeah, go ahead, Nikita. Yeah, and I just would say within there, just because they're waiting on a jury trial doesn't mean the case isn't progressing. We have okay. a lot of parents, and especially in Adams, who um, will work on treatment plans voluntarily pending that. So it's not a standstill just because we're waiting for that jury trial necessarily for that you know year, year and a half, like Tasha was saying, which we are stuck with some. A lot of times people are still working and moving things forward. So okay. just ask those questions. Really interesting. Yes, Tim. So can I, can I add in terms of that question, you know, so I represent uh, adoptive parents and foster parents who are accused often sometimes of causing an injury. Um, okay. And so I will tell you, one of the reasons that people go to trial is because they disagree with the allegations. Okay. So I have, I represent a foster parent, I will tell you, who adopted three kids. And then the foster parent was placed in their home who was severely, um, meth exposed and medically fragile. And there's a question about, is this a shaken baby issue when the child had a seizure or was this part of the child's underlying medical condition? Gotcha. So, so one of the reasons people request the trial is because they're disputing that this child is dependent or neglected and they don't want the government involved in their life. Okay. 
That makes sense. Tim, I was actually headed back to you um, anyway. There was a follow-up if you've ever um, represented a bio parent. And then the next question I want to hop to is I think number eight, D, which is what are the rights of a bio parent in prison? Do those differ at all in a DNN case? So uh, was the question, do I have I represented bio family or a bio parent? Um, I think bio family. Okay. So yeah, I, I do. I mean, I was in trial for three days this week up in Fort Collins representing biological family. Okay. Um, I would say in terms of my child uh, welfare representation, I think I represent more foster parents than relatives, but I do represent a lot of relatives. Okay. Um, uh, I think this is a great comment. So I'm going to throw it in here. Somebody says, I think as a foster parent, we just want connection. We just want to be part of the overall picture, not to be left out, thrown to the side. Our heart and souls are to put these kids where it, where they should be, back with their families, right? Or if that's not what's best, uh, other places. But it comes up, this does come up a lot. It's just that having a seat at the table. Um, I don't know, Tim, maybe Tasha, you might be, you might know more about if the if the parent is in incarcerated, how does that affect the case? So, you know, I I I want to say that the unspoken rule has been, oh well, the parents in prison. Um, I think that now you see more engagement of parents that are in prison, more outreach, especially I think you know with us being in more of the COVID technology age, we are getting more creative with how to get kids contact with parents that are in prison. A lot of prisons are allowing for um, video visits, some sort of conference visits. So we will ask and, you know, try to get the court to order that those happen. I think the underlying question would be how long, how long okay. is this parent in prison? You know, are they at the tail end of their sentence where we're looking at, you know, maybe a few more months for the mandatory parole date? What kind of bond did this kiddo have with the parent? I have parents that just find out that they are, you know, the father once they are already in prison and they literally had no idea that this is their kiddo. So everything would depend on the particular circumstances. And it also depends on the case overall. You know, if we are working with mom who is engaged and this is really a return home, you know, situation, then I don't want to say it doesn't matter that dad is in prison, but we're looking at APRing to mom and how the family works out the contact with the father that's incarcerated or, you know, whatever is going on with that. It's kind of left up to the parent that has the kids in their care. So it really does depend when it comes to termination the court obviously weighs in several factors, and one of the factors are, you know, when how long is left on that parent's sentence? You know, what is the possible early release date? What is the mandatory release date? And really judges, can this parent become a fit parent within that reasonable amount of time? And that obviously would depend on why the case is opened, what the issues are, and you know what is the status of 
that parent that's in prison. So there are a lot of variables that go into these dependency and neglect cases. You know, I think anyone who thinks of a criminal case is kind of like you have more definitive things that you have to prove, higher burdens that you have to reach. But these dependency and neglect cases are really what's in the best interest of the kiddo. And that can be several different factors. It can be several things, but the court has to take all of that into consideration. Okay, awesome, thank you. Dee, can you go to number nine? I don't think we'll spend a lot of time on this question just because we have done an appellate court panel. Um, what is done to support moving through the appeals process in a faster and more timely manner? That was the number one question that came up in the appellate panel. And the answer pretty much was, guys, the child welfare cases are the expedited cases in the appellate courts. So even though it sometimes takes 12, maybe even 18 months, those are actually the expedited cases. So there's really nothing being done to speed it up quicker than that. Is there anything else I should should add to that? Anyone? That's just the way it is. Um, this, this next one, question 10, I'm, I'm curious about. Um, I'm curious if and how the age of a child in care impacts the legal outcomes in the foster to adopt process. I'm not sure what that means. And I see that there's a difference in if they're younger, it sh is, you, you explain well, it. it. <laughs> not, not necessarily in the legal outcome. I guess I'm a little confused on the question within there. I mean, if children have a goal, if there's been a termination um, and their goal is an adoption, that goal doesn't have to change. I mean, I have a kiddo who's already turned 18. I still have an adoption goal because she still deserves a forever family. And I think we shouldn't stop looking um, and she needs that. And so I, I don't know if that is that portion as kids get older, we also have to do sometimes the concurrent stuff and we do need to make sure we're giving support um, depending on the different factors in the case, they could qualify for Wendy's Wonderful Kids, um, that program where they get the intensive support, recruit support for adoptive homes. Um, but I guess, I mean, other than at a certain age, you know, obviously they have to consent to an adoption, but other than that, I'm not sure necessarily what that means like if if there's a time where because of an age we give up on adoption is that I'm not sure if that's uh, a follow-up is um the it's more of a is is when does the kids choice become an influence so kids I mean they should technically they should be listened to all the way throughout I mean you know I could have a 10 year old who's saying I really want to be adopted by my foster home, or I really want to be adopted by my relative or, you know, and we're going to hear those, but they do have to consent. Um, once they hit that, that 12 portion, once they're older than 12, they'll have to consent within that framework to an adoption. So if they're not willing to be adopted, um, that does play a part. And that does play a part sometimes in terminating. So if a child is saying, I'm not willing to adopt and they are older, then well, then I think the department and the guardian line and the courts will give more time on trying to work with the family even and saying, look, they're not willing to adopt. Like, let's keep working. Let's keep trying because we need to um, move this and we want to move towards some sort of permanency for the child. Awesome. Thank you. Um, question 11. I feel like, um, oh, Casey, did you have something to add to that? Yeah, I think um, something that I see a lot with 
folks that come to me is when they initially agreed to foster, they had a conversation about what foster to adopt would mean and that it, they identified themselves to their agency or to their county as a potential permanent home. And I think those conversations are super important, but when a case starts, there is nothing that any caseworker, any agency can tell you about where that case is going to end. You know, we can have cases that feel a little bit more like the tea leaves are there to read as far as okay. how things come in. But <clears throat> one of the things I will hear from families is they'll say, I was very clear with my agency that I wanted to be a permanent home through adoption. And now we're in month, you know, 19 of something that's going on. And, and I, and I hear that frustration and think it's super valid as far as how foster parents can be best supported as they take on these roles and know what the options might be. But um, I, I sometimes see a disconnect just in that phrase from foster to adopt being how this process was, um, described at the outset and then fostered a permanency not lining up with that or cases where um, maybe there was even an express statement saying this case is going to end in adoption we're pretty sure well there's a whole bunch of other stuff that has to happen before anyone can really say that and so I think that the folks who have experienced this and maybe maybe another component to this question is just unpacking that to say you know the the intent is permanency and foster parents are asked to put themselves at the end of the case and say would that permanency be with you if this is where we end up but there's just going to be a whole roadmap of, of where it actually ends that might depart from that initial conversation absolutely thank you i think that's so important and we do often when 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 they're placed with us sometimes we're told this is going to go quickly to adoption nobody's engaged you know and so the foster parents hear that and connect with that. And then 10, 11, 12 months down the road, bio parent might engage. And then we're, we are going to look at and see if, if bio parent can, can be a fit. So it's, it's hard. Absolutely. Um, Tim, you talked about this earlier. So I would love if you could, if you could expand on this, are there any rights for foster parents accused of allegations? And that may end up in an investigation or not. Yes, I mean, there are rights. I think it depends on what kind of allegation. So obviously, if it's a criminal allegation, they have a right to, you know, you know, defend themselves and, and, and deal with the criminal piece. You know, what we see more commonly is kind of twofold, like the informal allegation that, you know, someone might just raise in a case that doesn't trigger anything else. Obviously, your right to be heard or your right to intervene is your right to at least stand up and say, that's not accurate. Um, if the allegation rises to the level, so when we use the term allegation, again, it's, is it just an informal allegation where there's no criminal charge or other action? Then there's the allegation that rises to the level where the Department of Human Services makes what we call a founded allegation. That's when, um, when you all became foster parents, you guys had to go through the trails background check, also known as the abuse and neglect registry. When the department makes a founded allegation against you, that puts you on this registry and it would prevent you from being a certified foster parent, it would prevent you from adopting. So if you ever get a letter in the mail that says there's this founded allegation, you have a right to do an administrative appeal of those allegations to get that founded allegation off your record. 
that's really critical because if you volunteer at your church, if you volunteer with kids or people who have a dis or like even at um, like um, nursing homes, they run that type of background check. And if you have that on your record, you can't volunteer at your school, you can't foster, you can't work at a nursing home. So you do have an administrative appeal. Um, unfortunately, I've dealt with a lot of those on behalf of um, foster parents and adoptive parents and people who have these types of things on their on their records. So yes, there are ways to respond. Okay, thank you. Um, question 12, this came up quite a bit as well. What are the kind of the advantages and disadvantages to TPR versus APR? Again, back when I was fostering, it was mostly TPR. I think one person I knew the county was trying to have them do APR. Um, I feel like APR is being suggested more and more. And I'm guessing uh, quite a few people aren't here, aren't even familiar with, with what these two mean. Um, so Tim, do you wanna start us off or Nicita? Great. Yeah, so I guess that if it, um, the, the TPR is the termination of parental responsibilities, that is the portion that allows a child to be legally freed for either the adoption or even guardianship um, down the road, but um, changes kind of the legal dynamics. The APR is an allocation of parental responsibilities. More often than not, when we're looking at allocation of parental responsibilities, it's because we have a child in a kinship provider or a kinship foster care kind of placement so that we have families who are going to continue to work together. A lot of times grandparents who are raising their grandchildren and um, but parents are able to may maybe not have the full parenting time or whatnot but can still have visits, supervised visits and things that are allowing them to maintain that connection. Um, the struggle I've seen where it comes to allocation of parental responsibilities with foster parents is actually not that I see it in the case, it's when I see it down the road when they go back and they're litigating things in the domestic relations court down the road and having to get their own attorneys at that point and having those expenses and working through those. Um, that I think is probably one of the, the struggles and something that's taken into consideration as to what does this allow for the child for consistency, stability, permanency, long-term, um, what are the ages and who are the parties involved when making those kind of determinations? Is it fair to say that APR is kind of like if it were a divorced couple? Yeah, I would say okay. that, um, it's, yeah, it's kind of like if you're the foster parent, you've got an allocation of parental, parental responsibilities, you essentially divorce the biological family and you're going to have that going back and forth potentially if people are doing what they need to, to modify the parenting time, the decision-making, what things look like. So yeah. What does custody like usually that. look like in those Nicita? Does one really, person have primary custody usually, or? It really depends on the situation. Um, and again, who the parties are, because we'll have families where maybe grandparents um, are needed for this long-term stability, but parents are having weekend parenting time, or um, it just kind of depends on where things are at for the safety factors at the end of a case. Okay. I, Casey, I want to hear what you have to say on this. I do feel like this is coming up more and more. And I, I think it's because, you know, research has shown that having ties and knowledge and experiences back with the bio family is so important and beneficial. Um, but I think uh, it's probably scary for foster parents sometimes. What do you think, Casey? 
I agree. I mean, one thing that's important to know about shifting your case type is that when your dependency case closed with closes to allocation of parental responsibilities and you get that APR order, that case moves from the courtroom that you're in with your juvenile officer to a domestic relations court. So it becomes, you know, 20 JV123. Now you're going to be 21 DR123. So you're now, you're in a different setting. And in that setting, there's no county attorney, there's no guardian ad litem or caseworker. So, you know, and sometimes that is a welcome thing to families who've been long system involved and they're ready to move forward. But it's not just a shift of um, courtrooms, it's a shift of standards and like what the requirements are there. And so I don't think that in any way is a bad thing, but it puts it into the custody courts, it puts it with all of the divorces and other non-parent informal care situations and things like that. Um, what the hill on which I will die is when cases are going to APR or if they're if you're in that situation, make sure you're talking to your county, your guardian ad litem, the respondent parent council about what needs to be in that order. Because as Nicito was saying, that order might get litigated in the future. Things might change. And as a custody system, we want that to happen because the needs of a four-year-old are different than the needs of a 12-year-old. But I've seen really bad orders where it's kind of setting everyone up for fights where it says in a relative situation, mom will have liberal visitation at grandma's discretion. Well, what in the world is that going to mean when there's a disagreement? And so, you know, I think if, if you're in that situation, if you're looking to that sort of permanency option, be really clear about what things you're looking for, what, what, even if you can't make a comprehensive plan or a graduated plan, but what is, what does that order need to say so that there's a really clear understanding between everybody who's co-parenting here in different ways about where are we starting and how do we move past it so that you're not automatically back in court um, after you just got rid of all of the court professionals and, and moved into a permanency phase. Awesome. Thank you, Tim. Um, I have an incredibly more cynical view of this question. Um, I will tell you, so termination is essentially the path toward an adoption being the ultimate custodial resolution. Uh, adoption is considered legal permanence. You have the same rights to that child as if that child was born naturally to you. And APR, and these are the situations in which I usually represent relatives. So if a relative is the, sometimes the first person with whom this child is placed, whether it be a grandma or an aunt and uncle, um, my cynicism is for a couple of things. Um, the child welfare system is overwhelmed. overwhelmed. Um, counties are looking for the path of least resistance, sometimes to close cases out, and family members are ill-advised as to what this means. So the majority of relatives for whom they sometimes have been given an APR or even foster parents are misadvised about what this means. So an APR is like a divorce case. However, it's like a divorce or custody case with a person with whom you never intended to have a child with. Similarly, in a divorce case, parents are on equal constitutional footing. Things don't change unless it's in the child's best interest or there's a change of circumstances. What people don't tell relatives, what people don't tell foster parents is that if you are a non-legal parent with a custodial arrangement with a parent, you are a second-class citizen to that parent. So when you go to domestic relations court 
and the parent wants to modify it, you as the non-parent have to show why that modification is not in the child's best interest. And oftentimes you have to consistently overcome the parent's presumption that what they want is in the child's best interest. I say that because relatives and foster parents are ill-advised and oftentimes say, well, APR is permanent. This is a type of permanency. Well, it's a type of permanency that's not permanent because it could be changed routinely and routinely. And because a foster parent or a relative, again, is not a legal parent, they will always be considered a second-class citizen in the eyes of the law, absent some very specific findings. So my advice is, whether you're a relative or a foster parent, this is one of those situations where you need to seek legal counsel to make sure that what you go into, you go into with eyes wide open. And this might be appropriate, but most people get into this and they have no idea what they got into. So absolutely, I will tell you my general thought is, I wouldn't wish this upon my worst enemy unless they go into it with eyes wide open. Okay. Tasha, somebody said, can't we just agree to have an open adoption? And when we had a panel that had a bio parent on it, the understanding was that oftentimes when that is the agreement, that's not end up, that's not what ends up ends up happening. And somehow connection is kind of lost there. Um, who, who decides whether it should be APR or TPR or who suggests it? Is that something that you would suggest on behalf of your client? So for um, respondent parent counsel and even on appeal, APR is a, a huge issue and it's probably brought up nine times out of 10. So as part of the termination proceedings, one of the things that the court has to find is that there was no least drastic alternative or less drastic alternative to terminating the parental rights. Terminating parental rights is like the extreme. It is legally severing the parent-child relationship. So it is taking away any right that a parent would have to even know that their child has been diagnosed with a terminal illness or to know what's going on if their kiddo is in a car accident. It is like unbirthing the child, if that is a word, which I don't think it is. I just made it up though. Um, So it is very drastic. So one of the things that the court has to look at is, is there a less drastic alternative that would be in the best interest of the kiddo? And oftentimes we as parent respondent counsel have to argue that APR is the possibility. Working in family law as well as dependency um, and neglect, I do believe that there is a way to craft an APR order that will leave very little to the imagination for the domestic relations court. I think, and I am always a fan of leaving it with as little um, to the imagination as possible. And I tell clients all the time that if you agree, you can always do something different. But the APR order is kind of the break glass in case of emergency. 
I draft orders that dictate who picks up, what time, when, when you drop off, how long, where you, can you go, just everything that you can possibly imagine, you can put in that APR order. Now, on the downside, and I can't believe I'm saying this, I do agree with Tim, <laughs> that, you know, you do have to watch. This is being recorded, right? I know. I can't believe it. Don't tell anyone. I will deny it. <laughs> <laughs> but you do have to walk in with your eyes open. You know, you cannot walk in with kind of these Mary Poppins ideals of how great this will be to work with parents. You have to look at it as though in the worst case scenario, what do I need to put in place to make sure that the kiddos best interests are being met? and to make sure that you as a foster parent are also secure, you know, and can safely meet the kids needs while still fostering this relationship. So on as a parent respondent counsel, I say that there's always a middle ground most of the time. Super. And if it's not, I, I still have a duty to argue it. Thank you. That is so helpful. Thank you all. Um, Dee, can you go to the next slide? I think this is interesting. I may start with you, Nicita. When a foster parent has adopted a sibling, why aren't they considered kin when new siblings come along? I'm, I'm guessing there may be some county overlap in this that's part of the struggle or well, I do you understand the question? Yeah, essentially, um, can they be almost it's a can they be considered kinship placement for the other child? Like, um, why aren't they first ones asked if a sibling comes into so, care if they've adopted the sibling? So that's a good question. Actually, when I get a case, if I know that the, that there's been a sibling previously adopted, I'm asking for the department to find that family and to tell me whether or not I can place siblings together. Um, they're not considered a kinship placement because they're normally they're they're still a foster placement although we define kin really broadly these days if we need to get a kiddo play I mean that we've defined teachers as kin we define like um title seven has a, a kind of a broad range of what we're defining as kin if that means that we have can have placement with someone that the child actually knows um in this situation the new family the adoptive family is not related to that child so it's not a kinship placement but um but yes under looking for those pieces those are something that i would look for and i look for it very early on obviously because normally when i'm getting that question it's because i have like a new baby and i'm like before we all get really attached to the very wonderful new baby like there's a sibling i want to find them fast because if i can place them together that will be great so now i'm wondering if part of this question isn't why aren't we asked first, but more, can we be kin instead of have it, have it be a foster care case, right? If it's a kinship case, there's less county involvement sometimes. No, I don't think that there's less county involvement. The issue more is a of funding in your oversight. So if you're a foster home, obviously you either are working with a CPA or you're working with the um, department and you're being certified and you have funding. If you're no longer accepting foster cases like you're no longer in that realm and you want to be considered a kinship placement I mean I think that that's one of those where that's going to depend on your team and what they want to argue in court on making that a case okay at the okay. end of the day that's helpful thank you yeah. um Dee, can we go to oh Tim did you want to add to that 
I'll just say what the law says is our law says there is a presumption that siblings should be placed together. And about a year and a half ago, the law changed. The law used to define sibling groups as children who had lived to, together. So in this situation, when a baby had previously been placed and a new baby was born under the law, that wasn't a sibling group. The law changed though in August of 2019, and there is a presumption now for a sibling group, which took away that requirement to children being having resided together. So I think to Nicena's point, when she says she looks, they should, the law requires that now. And there, there's a presumption that siblings should be placed together. Okay, super. We're gonna dive in a little bit of a different topic now. Dee, if you could move into question 14. We got quite a few questions about adoption stipend and negotiating the stipend. Um, when we sat down, uh, almost eight years ago, six years ago, I guess it was for our stipend, the person said, we're offering zero. And we said, awesome, because we were so excited to adopt. And what we realized later was number one, that wasn't a negotiation. And number two, there are a lot of things that come up. Trauma doesn't end with finalization and a subsidy and services would have been really nice. So how can, and I know we can renegotiate. I just, it's, yeah, we'll go and we can, we can talk about that another day, but how can foster parents go in feeling like, feeling confident that they're getting a good adoption settlement? So I would say, yeah, you can renegotiate, but it's harder down the road. And I, yeah. a lot of cases where I am the GAL, I'm like, Hey, I actually give Tim's number. <laughs> Cause I'm already on there so that he can help. You can get an attorney to help with your settlement negotiations. So he's probably great with answering this one. <laughs> um, well, I, I think, well, I think a couple things. One is again, as the subsidy, our law, our law changed as of this last August of 2020. And so prior to August of 2020, um, you know, again, as everybody knows, we are a state-run, county-implemented child welfare system. And so what was happening when we talk about subsidy negotiations, um, there's inconsistency historically amongst the counties about how they do that. Um, and there still is to some extent, but the, the new legislation was designed to try to bring uniformity amongst the counties about how this question should be answered. Because I think, Renee, to your point, your same fact pattern in a different county could have been, oh, we're gonna give you this. So our office, along with the Ombudsman office, drafted legislation to try to bring uniformity in accordance with federal law. So again, this is one of those things that the answer is truly a couple hour presentation. Um, but in effect, when, when you negotiate a subsidy, you can request, subsidy means a lot of things. It could be at the base, the low hanging fruit is Medicaid post adoption. It's a financial amount up to what federal law says. It's up to the amount of your current foster care rate. You're not allowed to request more. You can also ask for case management services. For example, if you, um, you, know, you know, case management service is something that Medicaid doesn't provide. So if you live in a rural community and you don't have a Medicaid provider and the county was providing out-of-pocket payment to a therapeutic provider, they would potentially do a case management services service that would survive adoption. Uh, you can also ask for respite. With this new legislation, you can also ask for up to $2,000 
for an attorney expense or adoption related expenses. Um, the biggest thing that's negotiated is that amount up to your rate. And what the county looks at is they look at what are the special and ordinary needs of the child, particularly as well as what are your individual circumstances. So there is no litmus test on your income. They look at what are the needs of the child, what's your family circumstance. So obviously, if you're a single working mother, and you're and obviously then you have to pay for all these things because you're a single parent, your analysis might be different than a two-parent household where you may not have other needs. But it's supposed to be a good faith negotiation based on the needs of the child and your family circumstance. Um, to this question about, you know, oh yeah, we can negotiate late later, you know, um, they say that and that's accurate, but any leverage is before the adoption because once you adopt, you're, they're expecting you to, as a family, as an adoptive parent to meet the needs of that child. Yeah. Um, and unless your family circumstance significantly changed, um, you're hard pressed to negotiate. But one of the biggest things as part of this process, it's not just the financial negotiation. And, and this is one of those pieces where I tell you from the financial piece, this is absolutely where it's a, it's literally a, it is a dollars and cents analysis. It is a, you know, there's very little emotion that should be involved with this. It is really trying to, how do you negotiate? We, what I recommend is we try to financially quantify the costs of having this child in your care, including, yeah, Medicaid may pay for this appointment, but what kind of cost Inc, like what's the cost detriment to you? Are you taking out of work to get this child the appointment? Have one of you, if you were a two parent working household beforehand, did one of you have to reduce or eliminate your work to help meet this child's needs? Um, but even as part of this process, what the county will do is they will do a child presentation yes. where they will either provide you a written document or some counties now are actually recording it mm -hmm. or videotaping it where they say, this is everything we know about your child. And essentially it's twofold. One, to make sure you know what you're getting into, but it's also a CYA for the county. So you don't come back afterwards saying, hey, we never knew this child was drug exposed. Yeah. And they're like, no, we did tell you that. Um, yeah, I mean, for, for us, we were a little bit self-righteous at the time. And we were kind of like, you don't have to pay us to raise our child. And I would really advise against that because the, the reality is there are struggles and challenges that come with raising a child from trauma that don't necessarily come with a neurotypical child. And you need that support. And once you're down that road and in crisis mode, and then you try to renegotiate and they want every paper and every... <laughs> everything, including your firstborn, it's just so overwhelming that you just don't do it. Well, and you can't, re sorry. I'm sorry, you can't renegotiate unless it relates back to what was identified at the time of the negotiation. Gotcha. So it's critical that if they don't identify all the issues that the child has, you need to correct it because then if something manifests later, there's this whole relate back idea. Is the future issue relating back to what was identified? Sorry, Nicita. Nice. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say, yeah, like Renee, along what you're saying, what I always try to tell um, families who are looking at adopting kids, I'm a GL for, that is not the time to have that feeling of, 
but I love this child and you don't need to pay me or that fear. I think sometimes people will feel afraid that if they don't accept what the offer is, that they won't be allowed to adopt or that they'll, they'll move this child. Please don't have that fear. And it's not about how much you love a child or how much you yourself can already support the child. It's about the needs of the child in the long term. And we don't want to have people coming back because we didn't provide enough support in order for things to be successful and give you the, the kind of supportive care that you need long-term. So awesome. those feelings have to be taken out. And those are the moments where we're calling someone, you can have an attorney present for those pieces, I think is really important because it is much easier to do it right the first time than down the road. Yeah, thank you. Casey? I would say too, to families, it is okay to slow down the process around the stipend and the negotiations. Sometimes it feels like you're in the steamroller and you don't want to be the problem and all of those other things. Um, a family came to me once where the child presentation was scheduled at 10 a.m., the subsidy was at 11 a.m., and the adoption was at 1 p.m. And so if you're in that situation, you've already told your young person they're getting adopted, your family's flown in, and the time we were working in person at courthouses, you really feel the pressure to agree to everything because you've got a total of three hours before you're in front of that judge to get it done. And that's that's both uh, one of the things that I think led to the ombudsman's investigation, the legislation that Tim was talking about to try and really take those bad practices out of it. But don't feel like you're forced to agree in a, in a time pressured situation. Feel like you can ask, if you get to an adoption meeting where you do the child presentation and they give you the paperwork on the stipend, you can take that. You don't have to sign it in the room. You can talk about it. You can you know, get counsel then. You can you know, bring other information back. So some, in that negotiation process, you know, that good faith negotiation, sometimes that uneven pressure presents in just the logistics of I'm here, I want to adopt, or they've scheduled the adoption not the same day, but next week or something like mm -hmm. that. And I think that creates some unfair um, pressure on families to just agree and be done with it. Well, and by that time in the case, Casey, you're so ready to be done with the county being involved in your life, that it you really just want to sometimes hurry through. But for for us, that was definitely a mistake. So definitely can consider that. Um, I actually want to skip ahead uh, for time to number seventeen, please, Dee. Um, Nicita, we talked about this on our judicial panel, and I'm hoping you can help again. We we often hear that uh, of families where they don't they don't have Nicita. So they are not hearing from their GALs as often as you communicate with your families. What, what do we do if we're not hearing from our GAL? Um, well, this one's a little bit even further than that. If, if we feel like our GAL might, may not be being truthful. And then is, can you explain, are there private, uh, are there private attorneys for the child? That, some that aren't guardian ad litem? No, um, no, I think, I don't know if they're thinking private as in they have their own firms and so they can't call and complain to someone. Maybe that's what they're thinking. Um, so, and I'm sorry, I'm changing a simultaneously. I know that's on record. I'm so sorry. Do you want me to skip to another no, question? <laughs> nope, I just did it. It's fine. I'm wiping my hands off. Um, in regards to the guardian ad litem, I know we talked about this before. Um, I believe that the best practices are that you see your child at least once a month, similar to caseworkers. That's what I certainly do. Um, within there, if you're not hearing from your guardian ad litem, first of all, reach out to them, be the squeaky wheel if you need to within there. But if you don't feel like you're getting heard enough within there, 
or having enough contact, you can also contact the Office of Child Representatives. They oversee all guardian items. You can reach out to them as far as kind of concerns as to whether or not someone is doing their job. Do they see the child enough to be able to actually effectively advocate? I know that there are some GALs who have social workers who go out um, in their place and give them reports back. That, that normally counts for them. I don't have one of those because um, I just like to see my kids on my own. But on the other end of it, yeah, the Office of Child Representatives is there and they're there to ensure that everybody in this state who is a guardian of litem is doing their job and providing effective representation for the children that they represent. So don't ever hesitate to reach out to them and, and certainly reaching out to your guardian ad litem. So the Office of Child Representatives would be kind of the higher authority? Yep, they manage the contracts and they handle any of the complaints that come through. So if, if you have a concern, that is where that goes through as well. Okay, thank you, Nicita. And as far as the truthful, I'd say, make everyone come to the table. You can ask for the home visits like with everybody, have the caseworker present. I don't know who you think they're not, like if you feel like they're not telling you what happened in court, as Tim said, you can be present and go um, to the court hearings and hear those directly from the horse's mouth, which I think is good. A lot of my kids certainly like to hear things directly from the horse's mouth sometimes. <laughs> yeah. um, or, you know, having those staffing so that if you feel like they're not telling you what a caseworker's saying, Putting people all together should be should allow for better communication, better transparency in some of those situations. Okay, let's go to 18. This is a little bit case specific, but I kind of want to keep it higher up, a little bit of an overview. Kind of the the question is, if you take a child whose case has been open for three years, and the child is the last of three half siblings to find permanency. How long can you realistically take to make an adoption decision? Um, basically, the, the, the family has just taken the child and they want her to make an adopted an adoptive decision in the next four weeks so that they can TPR. And they're saying they won't TPR unless they get yes. What normally a foster parent would have a lot more time to make that permanent decision. I I would say on that, take the time you need. Adoption and making a determination and a commitment to a child and certainly children with trauma and those pieces, we want those to last forever. We don't want failed adoptions. We don't want people rushed. Like take the time you need to be sure of what your commitment and what you can manage, manage and what you want as well and can commit to a child because this is, it's a commitment forever. So don't feel rushed if they're pushing you for that decision. Okay. Thank you. Let's go to 19. Uh, there's a couple more I want to get through and then we'll circle back to some that we, we missed. Um, during the pandemic, foster parents have reported that in several of their court proceedings, there were submissions from lawyers or caseworkers that were either not received or lost when sent to the court temporary email address. Does the panel know uh, or can you advise us um, a little bit about the court submission process, especially during this the pandemic and the remote format, um, making it so important that these submission processes are received. My understanding is sometimes you finally get your court date, but then a document didn't come in, so it can't go on. And obviously if we were in person, the attorney could be like, oh yes, here it is, judge, it's, it's right here. Um, anyone? I don't know if they're talking about like the court reports, but. 
I feel like that's been a, a battle we've had all of us probably forever of whether court reports are getting to the court timely or not. And those are kind of, the courts are always kind of battling those and those are caseworker specific sometimes. So I'm not sure if those are the reports that aren't necessarily before the court beforehand. Um, that's always been an issue. I can say too, I work in a lot of different counties and every county is different. Obviously we experience that, but every county's COVID and electronic filing standards are different. And so some of that is completely new procedures from them. So documents that would have not gone through the clerk's office now are for juvenile cases. So there's some kind of opportunity for different types of error as we try to make courts accessible during the pandemic. Um, each judge can sometimes decide if they're going to accept electronic copies or if they're going to go through different things. And so the number of issues <laughs> this is ripe to come up for as far as a paper getting misdirected or not filed in time or to the right place ha has really increased in my view. You know, in Denver Juvenile, there's usually drop boxes. So I can go and just be like, bam, bam, bam. And that can still happen. But, you know, there's, there's different um, expectations now, different ways it's happening. I don't think that this is unique to just our child welfare cases. I think I see it as right. The issues that have presented over time have still continued to present, but we're now trying to modify cases that weren't previously electronic into a quasi-informal electronic system, and it can just get into, into places it was never intended to go. Okay, that's helpful, thank you. Uh, Dee, let's do question 20. This one has a little bit of a backstory as well, but I want to just talk about kind of the overall theme of it, which is the pros and cons to long-term foster care versus adoption versus guardianship. So the backstory to this one is a 13-year-old who's been in care for two years, making great progress since he entered care at eight. Since he turned 13, he doesn't have to count any parental income on his FAFSA. That might, would that maybe be 18? I'm not sure. He will become eligible for enhanced food, housing, education supports at age out if he's still in care at 16, plus enhanced post-secondary education funding if he ages out at 18. Despite this, the department considers foster care without adoption or guardianship to be a failure. I'm guessing because it's not a permanency. In my mind, if I adopt or accept guardianship, it robs he, him of these fast approaching opportunities and robs us both of ongoing supports and services. How do you guys feel about that? It's val I think that's a valid point. I, you go ahead and I see that. I, I mean, so those where everything is so case specific within the different factors on what's best for a child or not. And, you know, knowing that there are those benefits, but that maybe that the child never feels a sense of permanency or um, the security of an adoption also has an impact. And so I'd be looking at those. Um, when it comes to guardianship, I don't believe on, well, and some of those I'd have to double check. So don't so I mean, any of these for guardianship, because a guardian is not required to provide financial support for a child. I don't know that that actually impacts a FAFSA. Um, there are still college supports that come through, regardless of whether you've been adopted, if you were actually in the system um, at a certain point. So honestly, I'd be looking at all those different pieces. And it's a case by case specific situation as to whether or not certain pieces are better for children. We do look for 
permanency is, is the goal because of the need for stability. But I also know there are some times where there are placements that would like to have the ongoing consistent support of their team and whatnot as well. So, um, I mean, in the same way that when we look at children from 18 to 21 and whether or not they transition to adult services, sometimes that's a big consideration of, but they lose their support team here. And why would we necessarily do those before? I know we used to look at children who might need adult services later on and an adoption does not put them at the back of the list like it used to, um, where that was something that was taken into consideration about, about whether or not we should just wait until adoption, like till adult services were in place or whether or not we could do adoption still. So, I mean, those are all things and factors and it's very case specific. Okay, Tim, did you want to add anything there? Yeah, yeah I think there's two issues here. Um, you know, when we, particularly when we talk about older kids, I think what people don't always talk about so much is, you know, departments of human services get federal funding. And part of that federal funding is they get graded or rated depending on certain outcomes and cases. Um, it's a ding to the Department of Human Services when children remain in foster care. And so oftentimes recommendations are made not necessarily based on this pure what's in this child's best interest, it's based on the funding streams and how, whether it looks good or bad. So I think that's where really the role of the guardian litem comes in because the judge and the professionals should be looking at an individualized determination of what outcome is in this child's best interest. And it might be long-term foster care for an older child if he or she has those support systems in place and, and there's different benefits. You know, families can oftentimes also work on, there's something now called, you know, it's RGAP. It's the Relative Guardianship Assistance Program, which is essentially, it's like a subsidized adoption, but it's either through guardianship or APR. And these rules and benefits change all the time. So sometimes there's ways to get similar benefits, but there's two competing interests here. It's not just always, I agree, what Nasita said is accurate. It should be a case-by-case -case determination of what's best for this kiddo. But the umbrella under which these are oftentimes made from the department, it's based on, again, these federal funding streams where they do not want kids to be in long-term foster care. Not because it may not be in the child's best interest, but because it impacts how they're rated because they keep a kid in foster care. So there's a lot of kind of backstory to why some decisions are made, at least from the department's guidepoint. But I think that's why the role of the guardian item is so important, um, as well as even for that older kid, your, your, your involvement in the case to say it's gotta be about this child, not some public policy. Gotcha, thank you. Uh, let's go to 21. We're gonna touch very briefly on Families First, the Family First. How is Family First reshaping the foster care system? What other legislation may be on the horizon that will also impact? Despite laws requiring DHS to give foster parents relevant information on a placement being put place years ago, I still encounter caseworkers who don't share information and don't allow for file examinations or questions so they don't quote unquote scare you off. I much prefer to be over-prepared than under-prepared. So how do I press for more details within the system? Or is the only recourse to decline placements when I don't feel adequately prepared? So I'll take the second part of that one. Um, so department, when they say, oh, I don't have the ability to give 
you that information yet because you're not a placement or, you know, if you're looking at that potential, guardian ad litems have a little bit of different of a ability within there as far as being able to share information that we believe is necessary in the best interest of a child. And so that's who you're going to want to talk to because we don't have some of the same limitations. Our, our ability to discuss things when it's in the best interest is um, a bit broader than the department within there. And more often than not, I'd rather you know all the worst case scenarios. So that way, if they never happen, great. But if they do, you're already prepared and have determined, you know, in advance, can I or can I not handle that? Because I don't need failed placements. They traumatize children. So um, reaching out to the guardian ad litem if the caseworker is saying that they can't share something is probably your best bet within there. But most times, Nicita, at that point, if it's before a placement, we don't even know who the GAL is. I would ask them. <laughs> I'd ask them within there. Um, and you can, I mean, it's, it's, I'm trying to think of another way if the department's not going to share that information. If you have a CPA, sometimes they're able to really advocate um, for you in those areas, but I'd push for that information. Okay. And look, the reality is, is that we don't have a ton of placements. Like we are searching right. Right. and looking for yeah. foster homes. Like, right. So you have a little bit of power in that sense, like, you know, don't abuse it and, and like be mean to us or anything, but like on the other, yeah. <laughs> we need you. Right. <laughs> so feel free to have the strength and power of saying, look, I might want to be a placement, but not until I have this staffing, not until I meet this team, not until, you know, we have that capability. Like I, I would love to meet potential placements all the time before I could place if that, if that's available and I'm happy to talk with anyone. I think that's a great point is that a lot of foster parents, and again, most foster parents are new and they don't realize that they do have a voice. Um, I think it was House Bill, don't quote me, but I want to say it was 181348 that talked about, and it passed, um, that foster parents are allowed to know reasons for previous placement disruptions, um, reasons for, for being in care, but a lot of times that doesn't trickle down to the caseworker. To the caseworker, it's still HIPAA, 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 you know, we're, we're, we're not allowed. We're, we're, what is that fine line between HIPAA and what we're allowed to know? I would say the judge. <laughs> I mean, the judge, okay. I mean, I mean, this is the weird thing about the child welfare system. And, and I come, you know, I, I went to graduate school in Chicago and I did child welfare, at least training in Chicago. And it's interesting, you know, Colorado, unlike Chicago, Chicago is a full on closed, you cannot even get by the courtroom closed child welfare system. Here in Colorado, these are considered confidential cases, but the courtroom is open to the public. So the irony is when we talk about kind of your rights as foster parents, a caseworker is going to come to your home and she's going to say, I can't tell you about that. But then you can log on or go into court the next day and hear in open court the very information that the day previously the caseworker said she couldn't tell you. You know, again, if we're talking about HIPAA for the parents, that becomes a little more complicated. In terms of the child, it depends on who holds that child's privilege. Oftentimes it's the guardian ad litem. And so if there's something you need for that child, ask the guardian ad litem. If it's something that's required for you to know for caring for this child, you could bring the issue up to the court. But again, I think that's why, 
you know, you know, here we have a situation where a child's removed from their parents in the legal custody of the department, living with a foster parent and the guardian ad litem holds privilege. So there's a lot of players here. Um, and if there's a dispute, that's something the judge needs to clarify in terms of who gets what information and who decides that. Okay, thank you. Tim. And when it comes to that idea of that HIPAA portion, like I'm not gonna hand out psyche vows on children, like okay. not a chance because I'm not allowing, like I, they're, I mean, I, I just, I hold the patient therapist privilege and hold it really tight because I don't need kids information everywhere with other, but talking about the behaviors and the things that you can expect and some of the challenges, like that's very different than saying, here's what a psyche vow says. I mean, so I guess that, you know, when it comes to those pieces and there is a fine line as to those portions, but, um, but yeah, reaching out to the guardian letter, I still think is going to be the best, the best thing. Okay. D, can you go to 23? Tasha, I would like you to help with this. If you, if you would, please, my kids were scheduled to be adopted in April and the team has submitted a petition for the bio rights to regain the rights. So basically for, I'm guessing for TPR reversal, does, does that, does that happen? Why would this happen? And what, can we do now? This is one of those cases, right? Where we're, it's been two years. There's there's strong attachments at this point. I think that's the perspective that the foster parent is coming from. I would say under these circumstances, definitely hire an attorney because this is really getting you know beyond the initial reasons of why the case was open and how they're doing on the treatment plan. This is like full on litigation at this point. And I would definitely advise you to hire an attorney. Um, well, I see Sorry, go there's ahead. Some, there, there's some legislation that's come in over the last couple of years that talk about situations in which a, a, a per, parent's rights can be reinstated, but the legislative intent of that, of that law was to really deal with situations where parental rights were terminated, you have an older child languishing in care, in care with the thought that this child would be adoptable, the adoption didn't happen, and if the parent's situation changed, a court having that analysis, is there a benefit to re- engaging that parent in this child's life. That doesn't seem to be, to Tasha's point, this does, that doesn't seem to be this case pattern. And so um, th that doesn't seem to be intents of the law that allows for the essentially parents to regain their rights. Well, and I will say that I, I, per, I just happen to know that this is a kin, a kin case. So does that change anything? Do kin have different rights that, for that foster care, parents don't, for example? No. Okay. And, and yeah, I would say the only time, so I'm in the middle of doing a petition, not in this case, um, that follows exactly like Tim had indicated that it was intended for, where I've had a child who's been in the system and has been adopted, but has been able to maintain connection and this parent situation has changed. This fact pattern doesn't match. So okay. I okay. agree with Tasha and Tim. A follow-up to you, Nicita, uh, regarding the HIPAA. Do official diagnoses fall more within evals or behaviors? Um, evals. Okay, thank you. I, 
can, and I can describe a whole lot of behaviors that might tell you what it is. <laughs> right, right. But, well, but so many overlap and present similarly. Right. And that's something that we look at when it talks about like, for example, I know you saw, or I saw in your thing that you have an ADHD training coming up. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure in that portion though, we understand that PTSD more often mimics those signs and symptoms and the things we look at when our children to make sure they're not overly medicated or misdiagnosed within here. So, um, so yeah. And, and even if we had diagnosis, that would not necessarily tell you the way the presenting behaviors are. So if you think about like reactive attachment or some of those other portions, the presenting behaviors are the things that are going to be most concerning for you as far as ability to handle and manage placement issues. Gotcha. We're going to go to question 24. That's the last question, but then we'll try to circle back to a couple that I skipped. Um, can a foster or kid provider appeal a decision? This is in reference to re-engaging bio parents after several years in care. So it sounds like similar to the one before. I think, I think my question would be, what do they mean by appeal? And so, um, so a new case came out in the last couple of years that says, so foster parents are allowed to fully participate in a termination hearing. If the court declines to terminate, there is a right for the county, the department or the guardian litem to appeal that denial of a termination. What our Supreme Court has said is that although foster parents have a right to intervene and participate, they do not have a right to on their own appeal a denial of a termination. I don't think that's this question. The way I read this question is, is can a foster parent or kin provider disagree with the department's decision to re-engage with a parent as part of a case? Because the way I read this is, I mean, appeal is a legal term of art. That's when we're appealing to a higher court, a final appealable decision. The way I read this question is to say, hey, we're part of this case. Parents haven't been involved for a while. The department found the parents and they're trying to get them re-involved. So I, I look at the word appeal and think, do they, can they bring that issue to the court? And you know, I think if you're a participant in the case, you can, again, understanding that the guardian litem advocates for the child's best interest, you can still raise issues before the court saying, hey, listen, you know, Johnny's been, it's been over a year before they, you know, without seeing their parents, let's talk about how we're doing this and to what end and what safety precautions are put in place to reintroduce Johnny to their parents that haven't been engaged. You know, so you can address issues to the court that you think potentially are contrary to what you know about this child. Um, But like if a trial court says, hey, we're gonna re-engage the parents, that's not a decision really that anybody can appeal to a higher court at that point. So I don't know if I've bumbled that. No, that that. helps, that helps. Thank you so much. Um, Tasha, follow up for you. At any point, do you ever advise bio parents not to appeal if you know there is no hope for a healthy reunification slash parenting after appeal? My under- from our judicial panel, that RPC said we will always appeal because that's part of your job to be sure you've taken every action. Is that accurate? That is correct. Uh, parents have the right to appeal. 
Okay. They and whether and in fact, I encourage my parents to appeal. It costs them nothing to appeal. They have to do pretty much no work. It is transferred, meaning the case is transferred to the appellate division of RPC. They get a new attorney that kind of looks at, at what the issues are overall. And you really never know. And I, I tell my parents, the only appeal that you are sure to lose is the one you don't file. So, right. you know, there's, there's something I could have missed you know, absolutely. None of us are perfect. There are things that the county maybe could have done better. The GAL could have done yeah. better, or maybe some mistakes that the judicial officer has made. So yeah. I will always advise to appeal. And I have some parents and you can kind of tell the parents throughout the pendency of the case that really are not going to appeal. They just yeah. won't. And then I have some parents that they're going to appeal every single decision that they can, every move that someone makes, they want to file an appeal or a complaint about it, Yeah, you know, but yeah, at the end of the day, they all have the right to appeal. And I never, ever advise them not to. Is that something you talk about early on in the case? Because we often hear they don't even know they're in appeal, right? Because they haven't engaged for so long. So is that something that you kind of set up front? Yes. So, and okay, parents that take the adjudication to uh, trial, whether it's a jury trial or a um, trial to the court, and the adjudication is just the opening of the case. It is sustaining the petition and saying, yes, we should have a court-involved case. Parents who take it to trial and, you know, as it often has happened, uh, where the uh, adjudication is sustained against them, they have the right to appeal that decision. Okay. Um, so some of them appeal very early on. And then parents, I mean, and you can have parents that you lose contact with and they're yeah. just really in the wind. Those are the cases where you don't see them appeal. Uh, we have to have that discussion at several junctions throughout the case, as well okay. as especially around TPR, um, you know, letting them know that, hey, this, whereas the court will terminate the parental rights, this is not the end all be all, we still have the right to appeal. Okay. So that's something that we are discussing definitely when we're looking at termination and then right in the beginning of the case, if they're taking their case to trial. Okay. Well, and what the RPC on the judicial panel also said is that even though it, it extends the, the case um, quite a lot, it's better than having permanency and then something coming up that would potentially change the permanency. Mm -hmm. So that made sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. But yep, they always have the right to appeal and we encourage it. Someone says, what is the benefit for bio parents of deferred adjudication? So what a deferred adjudication does is it essentially, it gives what we call the, the non-offending parent, meaning like if one parent, their actions actually cause the case to, to open and the other parent is just along for the ride. Um, and what I described to that non-offending parent is, hey, there was a party, you weren't invited, but you're here for the cleanup. So that is kind of what your role is. So it's really encouraging their participation in the case. 
it kind of walks them through and gives them the benefit of making a 5e no fault admission and what that says is that you know you are going to allow the case to open you're going to participate in services you're obviously going to make the kiddo available for services for periods of six months at a time so after the first six months we look at where we are with the case uh, some cases, and I've seen this a, a lot more lately, where they will dismiss the non-offending uh, parent as a respondent and then make them a special respondent in the case. Uh, so after that six months, we take a look at where the case is. The county attorney can request to extend it for one more period of six months. And then at that point, we either have to adjudicate that non-offending parent or again, dismiss them and make them a respondent uh, parent at that point. But it is really, I wanna say almost like a, an extension of the olive branch, if you will, to those parents to say, hey, we know you, know, you didn't do anything necessarily that caused the case to be open, but you're still a part of this kiddo's life and this is about the family as a whole. Okay. So it's kind of a, a, a bargaining chip, if you will. Okay. Um, a couple, One thing I would oh, just ahead. add with that portion yeah. too, let's not forget that there are also cases that open because children are beyond the control. And we have a lot of adoptive parents who come back down the road because they need the support, they need the help, the kids are struggling from their trauma or whatever their behavior choices, they're getting into substances, they're stupid, whatever the case may be. We have beyond control of parent um, cases and, and allowing the treatment to occur without having that adjudication enter against a parent, but still getting the support they need can be really beneficial to their okay. family too as a whole. Okay. Um, a couple follow-ups, uh, Tasha, regarding the appeals. Um, if parents are incarcerated or have a criminal case, do you still advise them to appeal? And would you still encourage them to appeal if they're going to be incarcerated for a longer period of time? Absolutely. I mean, honestly, there is no circumstance that I can think of where I would advise a parent not to appeal. And actually, it would be a breach of my ethical responsibility to a parent and the duty that I owe the parent to advise them not to uh, take advantage of a right that they they have. You know, I I am okay. really, really careful with my parents. They ask me all the time, well, what should I do? Tell me what to do. And I'm really careful not to do those things. Um, and I explain to them that, you know, I, I feel for you, but honestly, this is not my kiddo. These are not my parental rights. This is a decision that only you can make. So I can't think of any circumstance that I would ever advise a parent not to appeal. Okay, thank you. What, how often are TPR appeals overturned? Anyone? We're told I, very seldomly. Say, yeah, I want to say very seldomly. And I know that ICWA issues have been uh, overturned uh, quite, a, quite a bit just for, you know, not complying with the standards that are set forth in ICWA cases. But yeah, it's really seldom. They're appealed a lot. Yes. <laughs> I want to say probably 90% of TPR cases 
are appealed and maybe that other 10% are parents that you either can't find by you know the time frame that they have to to say that they want to appeal or parents that are just quite frankly not interested in appealing the case um, but they are up for appeal quite often but not not overturned a lot I feel like back when we were fostering we were told that in an appeals case in a TPR it, it doesn't necessarily go to court that an appellate judge reviews the case at, at his in his chambers and rules. Is that correct? No, it does go to a case. So a, a court of appeals case. So our court of appeals is in the same building as our Supreme Court in downtown Denver. So regardless of from what county a case is appealed, uh, the court of appeals sits in, in Denver County, the city and county of Denver. So appeals courts are panels of three judges. And what they do is they don't review new evidence. What the person who's appealing does is they file a petition for appeal and the reviewing court, the court of appeals is looking at the record. So like when we go to a termination hearing and the court's either recording it or someone's typing, they're listening and looking at testimony and they're looking at the evidence and they're trying to ensure that when the court was reviewing the evidence, the question is, did the court properly follow the law? Like, was there a mistake of law? The Court of Appeals is technically not allowed to substitute their own judgment for what the trial court did, unless it's a total abuse of discretion. But the Court of Appeals looks at the record, everything that came up in the trial court, and decides, was this properly done? Okay. Was every T crossed? Was every I dotted? Was it? Okay. Okay. Um, I'm just going to follow up since we have time for one more. Oh, go ahead, Casey. Oh, sorry, Renee. I just wanted to think of this topic kind of through where Tasha started in the kind of coming in with compassion and thinking about the trauma. Um, if you were having this permanent decision made where you're not going to have your child in your life, you want to try everything you possibly can. And so understanding a lot has happened in the process and things like that. I would encourage people to think of it through that lens too, instead of thinking of, of it just as a nuisance or just for the procedural reasons we're talking about. Um, parents who are not going to have contact with their children need to know that they've tried because this is this is their life and their future as they're thinking about it and I think that's an incredibly valid thing to let them um, kind of take advantage of every opportunity in the system to make sure that that decision was right and so that you know foster families here will try everything they can to advocate and protect those children and an appeal for a respondent parent is, is a tool for them to do the same thing. And so instead of thinking it, of it maybe as adversarial, one another way to think about it would be processing that grief and loss. And if something needs to be identified and changed, then absolutely that's the process to do it. Um, but it, it gets at deeper issues there too. Yeah, great, great follow-up, Casey. That's, that's true. Um, I think we're actually going to wrap up. Is there anything that any of you would like to say to foster parents? First of all, we are so grateful to each and every one of you for being on this panel. The feedback coming in so far is just so full of gratitude. We have all learned so, so much. Um, and, we, we, you know, we, we are 
grateful to be part of this experience. We want to know, the more we know, the better we foster, right? And that's really the point of services like ours is to kind of extend an olive branch and say, let please let uh, lean on us. Let us be part of this. Um, we're just really grateful to all of you. Thank you. Lindsay, Miss Lindsay is going to walk everyone through getting their certificate. Okay, here is your verification code. You absolutely have to have this to get your certificate today. So today's code is lawyer, all, all lowercase. I'm gonna let that hang out for a minute. I will put it back up on the screen at the end as well. L-A-W-Y-E-R. You didn't even say it with that much of a uh, Southern accent, Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's words do. like walk and talk that I struggle <laughs> with, apparently. Somebody will be typing that in the chat here shortly. Thank you, Sam. Okay, to get your certificate, when you come back to your dashboard for today's class, it should look pretty similar to this. Your webinar will have a green check that you attended. If you have emailed Mary saying that you, you were watching with somebody else, she has probably already gone in and done this for you so that your webinar box should still have a green check. So down here is where you're going to enter that code for today. And submit, you're gonna get your pop-up that it was successful. We have a survey, please, please, please take the time to fill this out. Um, most of these questions relate to Foster Source as an agency. Um, these are exceptionally important for us as we are looking for more and more funding. So please do not follow my example. Um, let's go middle of the road, I guess. And then you're gonna hit finish. You're gonna get that pop-up again that it was successful. This is the most important thing. You have to click view or print your certificate down here in yellow. And you see right now you've got three green check marks you're missing that fourth. So go ahead and click that and that's gonna pull it up. You can close it at that point. You do not have to print it right now. You don't have to download it but you're gonna come back and see now you have all four green check marks. Your certificates are always stored in your dashboard on the classroom. If you go, you can hit transcript and achievements and every class you've completed is listed. And you can always hit that view print certificate link under the class. That'll pull up your certificate. It gives you a print option. From that print option, you can also download it as a PDF. Okay, and there's the code one more time. We'll just let that hang out. Um, while we're on here real quick, uh, someone says we have a child, adoption is being held up due to no birth certificate. Mom never applied. Does anyone know if they can proceed with adoption without a birth certificate? Normally the county will go ahead and apply for that portion. If this is the one that's out of Texas or they're trying to get it over, I've seen that uh, GAL looking for that answer for them previously, but 
Vermilion County will go ahead and take care of that and apply for one. Okay. I don't know what's, what state that is. Um, someone says, once TPR is ordered, how fast do the, does the potential adoptive home have to make a final adoption decision, knowing that grief and trauma will be a result of losing one's family and therapies and time to grieve is important? As I, that goodbye visit falls in there as well. Goodbye visits are, are tough within there um, because we have some parents who won't want to have their goodbye visit until after an appeal has all gone through. And at that point, it may be a long period of time before the child will have seen that parent and that can be re-traumatizing. And so even looking at those goodbye visits that are delayed until later, um, again, they're gonna be case by case specifics too about those occurring for, because it's, it's about the child at the end of the day within there. Um, so, I mean, and, and the same thing with deciding if you're ready, obviously, until the appellate process is already through. And yeah, I think it is about 90%. There's a lot of appeals going on. You got a little bit of time to really think about those pieces as well yeah. within there um, before you could even get through that process. 